Hello and welcome to the Bits of a Tangent podcast, where we bring you mind-bending ideas from science, philosophy, artificial intelligence, medicine, and more. I'm Jared, a medical student and aspiring Bayesian thinker, and as always, I'll be joined by my co-host, Jean-Luca, the man who composed our fantastic intro music while holding down a full-time job as a data scientist, no less. In this episode, we explore and expand on dozens of ideas, including absurdism, existentialism, and the sense in which things are intrinsically empty. An antidote to becoming bored and complacent with the world. Visions for the long-term future of humanity, including a framework for even thinking about these kind of huge questions. And why you shouldn't ask a genie to cure cancer. We had a great time recording this one, and there's still so much more each of us could say on many of these ideas. We hope you enjoy this meandering journey. You can find links to all of the books and other content mentioned in this episode in the show notes, where we also occasionally add some bonus content related to the show. And so, without further ado, here's the episode of Bit of a Tangent. So, what the fuck are we here to talk about? Uh, I wanted to talk about absurdism and meaning and how they relate. Cool. The reason I thought about this was because I guess we should maybe introduce some of the concepts here, but I know that previously in your life you've delved into like existentialism and how that relates to things we've spoken about before on this podcast, which is like our own personal journey down the road of losing the sense that the world is sunshine and butterflies and meaning that's just given by some nice higher power. So I thought it might be interesting to delve into existentialism first and then we can touch on absurdism and your thoughts on that as well Mm. so why don't you yeah why don't you start by um just talking about existentialism and the role that played for you and then we can go from there so yeah at, at some point the inevitable realization that the universe has no intrinsic meaning for anything or anyone or specifically not for humans leads to a sort of emptiness, especially if you've been brought up in a religious context, or just in general, because I think children like to believe that they are, you know, I, I think as a child, it's quite solipsistic in that you, you are the center of your own narrative and you, that doesn't feel weird or out of place to you. Like you legitimately grow up believing that you're the center of the universe. Um, and at some point reality starts to clash with that. But the idea that, that the universe doesn't have any intrinsic meaning can potentially lead to nihilism, right? Which would just be belief in nothing. You know, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, there's no need for anything. And that's kind of a bit of a futile philosophy, not in, in terms of what I'm saying like it's pointless and bad. What I mean is, is, is that it makes you face the futility of existence. What something like existentialism tries to do, as far as I'm aware or as far as I understand it, is to go, okay, look, well, the universe has no intrinsic meaning. But instead of being nihilist and therefore just like believing in nothing, let's go and rather create our own meaning, right? So our existence brings the meaning and so we choose the meaning and so it can mean whatever we want it to mean. And uh, my sort of first foray into this was many years ago now. Um, I must have been about 16, 17 at the time. And it was actually through Albert Camus. But Albert Camus actually identified more as an absurdist, which is not entirely the same as existentialism, uh, as an existentialist. Uh, so like your Sartre is much more of an existential philosophy and your Camus, he likes to classify it as, as absurdism, which I, and I, and I think the, the difference there is, I'd, I'd say one's probably a subset of the other in that absurdism kind of revels in the absurdity of the meaninglessness of existence and in the, just the weirdness of what it means to exist. And from that draws a sort of, I don't know, like ironic meaning in a sense but I feel like I never really, like I got into the works of absurdism 
um, in that I read like two of Camus' books and I, I really liked the aesthetic and the approach of it but never really got into the philosophy enough as in the way I get into things now or, or sort of an, an older more mature way of, of looking at things I, I didn't really have that and so yeah for me it was sort of just a stepping stone to current beliefs yeah so that's the that's the, the long the long way around but yeah what's uh, what's your background I guess so like part of the reason I was asking this question is because I've been reading a bit of uh, Kurt Vonnegut and, you know, the complete dripping absurdity of most of his writing. It's like uh, Slaughterhouse-Five and... Slaughterhouse-Five and the one that I'm uh, looking at at the moment is Breakfast of Champions. So there was a line in the book, which uh, maybe I'll pull up to quote later, but essentially the reason that I, I quite enjoy absurdism, right, is it brings up something else you've spoken about before, which is the whole sort of centrality of play and finding joy. We'll start off with our first Elias Yadkowski quote for the evening and just say, joy in the merely real, right? And something that, an exercise that I've always found very intriguing is one where you try and describe something that you've been taking for granted. The example I always use is that of, of lungs, right? It's really easy to say, oh, I have lungs, it's something simple, and yet, if you look at what you really have, right, is you have these two sort of air-filled sacs expanding and contracting that are like the size of a tennis court in, in surface area, and they kind of spew moisture out into the atmosphere, and all of this is to drive oxygen molecules across membranes for a purpose. And so like, it's quite a fun exercise to describe things in lengthy detail that gets down into like the mechanics of it. Yeah. Or like eating. Eating is a, is a, is a really fun one. Mm. You know, it's like using weird rocks inside your oral orifice, right? To squash up and tear apart bits of wood and other creatures' flesh. And then you make it into smaller pieces and then you suck it down a tube. And then you like dissolve it with some acid, compact it, and pass it out again. And all of it to like conjugate a phosphate group, as far as I remember. Something like that. So these examples are absurd. And for me, there's something to that exercise in that it can bring a, about a kind of noticing, like a, a deeper sort of awareness and appreciation for just how strange things are. And I find that's a useful antidote against getting sort of very narrow and short-sighted about how crazy everything that exists is. So, yeah, I don't know if you uh, want to react to that quickly. Yeah, so 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 like I said before, for me, it's, it kind of serves as a, a nice, like, interim phase between believing that the whole, as you said earlier, something along this, believing that the whole universe is, is rainbows and transitioning into sort of providing one's own meaning to life because there is no intrinsic one. Um, so, uh, yeah, it is like a nice springboard. But, yeah, it, it, it's this emotion of going, okay, well, look, it was all ridiculous. And it, it's kind of, for me, like seeing the, the lighter side of, of things and, uh, and and just seeing reality for the, the sort of comic <laughs> enterprise that it is. And, and then that springs on to, you know, more interesting philosophies such as transhumanism and things like that. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a nice take as a whole philosophy to live one's life by, mm. less so for me. But that could just be because I don't really understand it, right? And so I feel like it also has a very strong aesthetic as a result of the literature and the artworks that have expressed its ideas over the years. And so it, you you can kind of lose the, the meaning in the aesthetic. Mm, so so it might have just become fashionable and associated with a group of like French intellectuals who did a lot of... Well, yeah, well, that's the thing, right? So, so, so for me, I kind of I associate it more with the aesthetic than I do with the core philosophy itself. But yeah, I think it's a nice, I think it's a nice uh, spring, springing off point into into other things. And so, I'm interested in, in how you how you then like apply it and, and sort of where you've gone from there, or like and how how do you square your sort of absurdist perspective with a more stoic perspective mm. not that they're like inherently opposed at all but just like how how those interplay um okay so i guess in terms of how to square like the sort of absurdist part and the uh 
stoicism part as you say i don't think they are opposed and i think that the way i view it is stoicism is there for you when things are at their worst or at least not going as well as you'd like and absurdism is a way to squeeze a bit of extra juice when things are going pretty well so it's like and maybe you could flip those roles around to some extent but by and large i i I generally find um some consolation in the stoic ideas that you can endure much more than you expect you can, that the world doesn't have to work in favor for you, that it's almost inevitable that bad things will happen and like deluding yourself that they won't is just going to make it worse. And so I find that useful as a a sort of background reminder, right? But when I'm in like a comfortable situation with a friend or, you know, maybe like a romantic partner or someone you want to get to know better, right? So now the attitude that you should bring to that situation, I don't necessarily think needs need be the sort of stoic fortitude, but rather you want to create like delight and play and magic and just novelty. And I think absurdity for me is, is like adding in that extra bit of novelty. Uh, it's like blowing past the barriers that come about by like routine and like the the, the concepts that you use on a day-to-day basis to the extent that they are almost ingrained patterns or just habits of thinking about the world. So to trivialize, one might say that you're a stoic on the streets and an absurdist in the sheets. I think we should name the podcast that. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So yeah, so the stoicism is utilized best almost notably when uh, when things are really dire as a as a way to get through whereas the absurdism is a way to not become sort of depressed by the pretty good parts of life right because I mean, clearly clearly just having things is not enough right like like you could you could you could have all the material things and still be miserable and so the absurdism is is quite useful in that perspective you know so like your, your sort of depressed movie star can benefit most from it whereas the, the stoic the real value of stoicism comes from things being you know rock rock bottom in life and uh or, or things being like pretty bad but it, it's almost a comparison to how much worse it could be and, and acknowledging that whatever it may be, good or bad, it will pass. So you, it's, you're almost cherry-picking the philosophies for certain parts of your life for where they hold the most value. It's an interesting approach. It's instrumental philosophy. Yeah. Almost. So there's actually a wonderful tie-in here that has arisen as they just tend to. So as you said, right, uh, this like, you can view your foray into existentialism and some touch of absurdism as a jumping off point, right? We could call it the philosophical jumping off point. And the reason that this is linking up in my head is um, I spent a little bit of time this week trying to convince some people that we should really, really value the long-term future of humanity. Now, this was, you know, just a classic lunchtime argument. And I was trying to express that, like, of all the things we could value, like, moving forward and continuing was perhaps the most obvious one. And the reason I'm mentioning this, right, is because it links up with, I guess, what you could call, you could call a vision. Having a vision for where you want the world to end up, right? Like you can think of all the set of bad things that could happen and the very narrow set of good outcomes and steering humanity maybe towards that, or maybe not even on such a broad scale, right? And I'm going to close this off by mentioning something that I read today, which I thought was just a, a beautiful mathematical formalization of this, which bears repeating. And then I'm going to let you jump into your idea for vision. But I'm going to first explain why there's actually a mathematical reason to believe that vision is a good thing to have. So this comes from a set of lectures given by uh, Richard Hamming. And these are... Oh, of Hamming codes. Mm. Okay. And um, it's, they're recorded in a book called The Art of Doing Science and Engineering, right? And at the end of the first lecture, he recalls like the very well-known phenomenon in sort of computer science and like modeling of random walks, right? Classically, the drunkard's walk, which just to give some context, basically says that if you have a, a person who is sort of staggering and they have equal probability of moving sort of left or right after n steps you would expect them to be the square root of n away from where they started i've said that correctly i think uh yeah i believe that's right and then hamming basically goes on to uh show in this lecture that if however in in his lecture he posits if there was a, a beautiful woman but um maybe we'll update this and just say a wonderful person <laughs> uh on his left side right 
you'd expect him to significantly deviate towards one way or another. And he goes about this proof and shows that even if you don't know uh, exactly where it is you're heading, as long as you have something you're aiming for, the, the agent after n steps ends up on average n steps away. And so his point that he was trying to make was that over the course of a lifetime, if you just stagger about with no vision, you'll end up on average root n away from wherever you started. Whereas if you push towards something, anything, on average you get to n. And so I thought that was a really great way of getting you know people to really think about where do I want to end up and uh, how can I use as many of the n steps available to me to move in that direction, even if I have to update the direction as I go. That's really cool. I like that. Because if you, if you have no direction whatsoever, then a large, the, not the majority, well, yeah, the majority of the time you are moving either tangentially where uh, it, you're not moving towards anything. You're just moving sort of parallel to it, or perpendicular to it. Um, and then yeah, you're not moving towards something. Yeah. So you're just, you're just moving sort of side to side and you're not getting any closer or further from the thing that you would otherwise be aiming for. Um, and then, you know, like a quarter of the time you're moving away from it. And then a quarter of the time you're moving towards it if you assume only four directions. So, you know, most of the time you're actually not getting any closer to some sort of goal. So most of your time is actually kind of wasted. Um, and sometimes actually spend actively working against yourself. Whereas, yeah, if you just have a general, like just 90 degree sort of arc that, you, that you're aiming toward, you tend to pretty much walk close to an ideal line. That's a really, that's a really nice, especially if for people who are, are familiar with the concept of random walks or have, have you know, used them before to, to simulate things. That's a really nice, elegant way to, uh, to express the idea. So then the idea is just, okay, cool. You need something to aim towards so that you're not actively working against yourself or just kind of going from side to side. Yeah. So then, um, A, how do you pick this thing? And B, how do you know what moving towards it is? And this is the, this is the fun part, right? Like this is actually how we get to apply. Yeah, I'd love to hear your answers to those questions, uh, your thoughts on how to pick something and applying that. But I'd also like to hear maybe some of your actual answers to that. So if, if you have like a, you can use the word vision for humanity, what that might be and why and how you are moving towards that. I'd be very, very interested in that. Cool. So I'll get to my specific vision in a second. But in terms of where that uh, analogy may break down somewhat of the random walks and where, you know, the actual challenge comes in is saying, you know, heading towards something with a random walk. Well, that kind of implies that, you know, the terrain, at least to some extent, at least, you know, something mm. about it. Uh, beforehand at, at which point you know doing a random walk doesn't really make sense anymore because now you just know where you're going or have a sense of the direction so you know the whole utility of a random walk is when you you cannot know anything about the the terrain and you can't really decide where to go and you've got to stumble across points but you could still apply it to some extent in terms of stumbling into sort of like one quadrant or, or something like that but yeah you you have to have some kind of survey of the land first to even pick something to head towards right and then obviously this is a walk in in 2d but you know in terms of uh, the possible space of futures that's n-dimensional and n could be whatever so uh, it's a challenge from that perspective and then there's the idea of what it means to walk towards you know move towards something you know we may have the same goal stated that we want to you know minimize suffering your solution may be not to tie you with a, a brush but uh, your solution may be to just you know eliminate all human beings because then there will be no human suffering uh, my solution might be to you know give everyone crack cocaine in, in limitless supply you know both of these are clearly terrible ways to minimize or, or, or you know terrible approaches to minimizing suffering but we both agree on the end and other people with more reasonable approaches like promoting better health care and boosting the economy also agree with the with the end but the means is is very different so yeah what it means to walk towards a goal is also a big part of the question. So to then bring that into the, the realm of specificity, my vision for humanity at least would be something along the lines of, okay, currently where are we? We have a lot of people and that number is gonna grow evermore. We um, still have a lot of suffering and the vast majority of that is potentially undeserved and unnecessary. I'd say almost certainly, yeah, almost certainly unnecessary and 
largely as a result undeserved. And the first step should, should be to reduce or eliminate that as much as possible, right? Obviously, you can't eliminate all suffering because there is utility in suffering sometimes as long as it's under the right conditions and those tend to revolve around it being a choice you know so the worst experience of a person's life would be to go without food and water potentially for you know weeks on end and be freezing cold and being shot at and shouted at and and having horrible conditions and you know that also may be the, the best times of someone's life because that you know they chose to go and do special forces training and you know that made them a stronger and better person and so yeah the the choice and the consent is is valuable there and so yeah the suffering needless undeserved suffering should be minimized and eliminated entirely first step that largely focuses on social economic and um, health care related optimizations then thereafter was like, cool, now we've eliminated a lot of the bad stuff. Now, how do we like organize ourselves very effectively if we haven't already to eliminate the bad things? How do we organize ourselves really effectively to now go and do good stuff, right? And to go and... So I think of things of like, you know, exploring the universe, expand, first, you know, c- uh, keeping the, the species safe from existential threats. So, you know, we'd want to go interplanetary pretty soon. We'd also then want to have better ways of defending ourselves against uh, internal threats such as people making malicious ai uh, or you know nuclear attacks or things of that nature and then i mean this, these are all you know these are multi-generational goals but I, I think at some point we sort of have to go all right cool and then what you know like then what's the point is the point to just explore the universe and that's almost something that uh, is uh, introduced quite well in isaac asimov's short story the last question it's a fantastic story yeah so if you if you planning on reading that and you're listening to this and you want to avoid spoilers even though the research suggests that spoilers don't actually really spoil things at all then block your ears for the next 10 seconds but the idea of it being that humans are trying to essentially fight against entropy after some point and so we can explore the universe all we want but ultimately the entropy will get us and that finishes us all off coming back to the the spoilers thing yeah there was a there was a study that found that knowing spoilers to i think to a film it was that they did in the study actually had a positive effect on people's perceived enjoyment of the thing so you know your sort of like classic thing would be like let's say someone spoiled the uh, darth vader luke skywalker moment in um, the empire strikes back that's like you know at the time was a big plot twist but like a lot of people thereafter sort of knew about that going into star wars and that didn't spoil their enjoyment and so yeah the study found that people having things spoiled for them actually didn't decrease but actually increased their enjoyment but yeah it's a, it's an interesting thing and it's kind of like why when you study the classics like we know how romeo and juliet ends before we read it we know how hamlet ends before we read it at least in a macro sense um but yet the the, the value of the thing is is seeing how it unfolds and you sort of i think there's also a large part of having a thing come full circle to meet your expectation of what happens and see exactly how that comes to pass is quite satisfying and sort of you know fires a whole bunch of synapses and releases some dopamine and actually can make it more satisfying so yeah as a, as a little uh, tangent there spoilers aren't actually the worst thing in the world but if your if your choice is to avoid spoilers for whatever reason that may be that isn't your reason for avoiding spoilers may not be to increase your enjoyment it may be for some other reason and so uh, I'm not going to take anyone's liberty away. Uh, I'm sure someone on Twitter will disagree with you and is now furiously starting a Twitter mob because you spoiled the last question for them. But yeah, so so my vision, I've, I've taken much of a random walk in uh, trying to explain what my vision is because I haven't really conveyed it in words to this extent before. But yeah, it would be something along the lines of start by minimizing or ridding the world of suffering, then start to maximize human well-being uh, by coordinating well, make sure that our species is safe from extinction and any, any kind of existential risks, uh, internal and external, and then while we do all of that, plot a trajectory for what we are going to care about as a species and what we're going to pursue if we do make it through eliminating sort of all the negatives and, and installing the base sort of positives as in then now there's no meaning but now with all the obvious low-hanging fruit of meaning is gone what are we going to do and i think that might actually be a challenge down the line but it's far down the line mm. so i want to know from you because so let me just say so how would you respond to someone who raises the objection that um, if we remove the suffering in the world, we're somehow removing our own humanity. Uh, I was having a similar discussion the other day, and the main objection that uh, the person I was talking to raised was that if we make this sort of 
techno utopia that I was uh, trying to get across, we would somehow find people being listless and bored and devoid of all the challenges which make life quote unquote meaningful. So uh, how would you respond to that? I see where that, that viewpoint comes from. I think there may still be something to it. However, at the level it was presented by, by this person you're speaking to, you, you can dismiss it pretty easily by going, okay, cool, we'll, we'll look at what humans do, right? If you start removing challenges from people's lives, they, they will start creating new ones. If you put a teenager in a room and give them all, all the resources they need in terms of food and, and sleep and Kleenex, they will, <laughs> they will, they will fire up the PlayStation and uh, start trying to beat the hardest level on whatever game they have, and then they'll go online and play against their friends and try and be the best. And your people will create challenges because we naturally, mm. um, for the vast majority of people, don't like to feel like we're being stationary, um, and we like having objectives to pursue. Um, and that's why I think like video games are just as a bit of a tangent, a highly addictive for a lot of people, especially young men, and b can be a problem in in terms of pursuing life goals so like for me like i, I know i just I, I must avoid games at all costs because i can just go full into them um, and i become obsessive over them and then everything i'm thinking about is how to be better at that game right and whereas i'd much rather that that game be something in my life that i'm actually you know going to work towards that's just as an aside but yeah so humans will create challenges for themselves uh sport arose almost without doubt from the lack of uh, regular warfare or regular combat between groups of people so we then devised other sort of forms of slightly less violent competition that would allow us to still have challenges and face off against each other and, and have those things so humans create challenges for themselves and so i think if we can construct our society and uh set our motivations to make those challenges the things that help you move humanity forward, so curing diseases, uh, minimizing suffering, etc., then we won't have a problem because as we sort of reduce challenges in one place, we will move on to tackling challenges in another. Um, and I think it's very far down the line, sort of in a interplanetary, you know, many centuries into the future existence where you know we we live in these space habitats where everything is controlled by ai and we're in total comfort all the time i think only then does that concern actually become genuinely valid when it, when it's like there's literally there's no more reason to pursue science or knowledge of any kind because everything has kind of been discovered or computed towards any end we can imagine and then the sort of futility of existence really becomes a problem right but hopefully by then we have solved that problem too but that would then become our challenge right that would be the the task that the humans of that era would have to face this is like okay cool what we what do we do with existence now that we've taken care of all the bad stuff so that would then become the challenge right so fighting boredom becomes the challenge as soon as you remove the need to fight hunger and poverty or whatever it might be that would be my retort to that okay i don't know uh, what are your what are your intuitions on this and if your vision differs dramatically from mine how so and why so i mean uh, i think just to complete your thought there on why uh, we both feel that that argument is not completely coherent the long and short of it would be I think removing the suffering of children dying of cholera and malaria and all the other awful things, we don't need to see that as an impediment to uh, finding value in our lives. And uh, as you say, I think we can find plenty of sources of artificial and extrinsic value, meaning and interest. As for the sort of further topic of like visions for the world, I really enjoy thinking of it in terms of the fact that there's only like a very narrow channel to navigate down in terms of things going well, right? There's just far more ways for everything to go to shit than not. There are far more ways for us to increase suffering than to decrease it. And that's true of like most optimization problems, right? Yeah, there are very few solutions that satisfy the equations, but very many that don't, yeah. And so I kind of like to think of this, like we're all collectively tugging on the sights of the the gun that's going to launch humanity into the future and the broad swing of the arc can be terrible but somewhere there is a bullseye that has much of what we want or even most of what we want and by we i mean whoever happens to exist at the time this is going on and there's space for argument and for compromise there that's fine so I don't know if I want to go into the specifics right now of, of what I think that vision should be, because there's a few other things I want to talk about. But 
that's generally the model I have in my mind. And I guess I'm trying to take seriously in myself this project now of if you really say that you value this like long-term future of humanity, then it should be expected almost. Or I, I'm trying to see that it's now I expect myself to do something about that, right? And I guess for me, this really ties into the project of talking about things that we want to avoid now just personally. I see it as a sort of mini tragedy that most people will somehow end up being decidedly average, right? I mean, that's completely tautological to say, right? By definition, whatever most people do will become average. Yeah, but when I talk about average, I don't mean in the statistical sense. I mean it more in the sense that how many people are really going to take up the gauntlet of really trying to do something differently? And how many of like the sort of idealistic 18-year-olds who find themselves like just going into university with like genuinely big, good intentions for the world. And then by the time they reach 25, they're starting to settle down and say, well, you know, I, I know I said I would never do this, but actually it would be really nice to get this slightly nicer car and some sort of stability and a nice house in the suburbs. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say I'm looking down on that life path because I can see definitely the appeal and I don't think it's incompatible with other ideals you hold. But for me, if you're going to settle at just that, there's like this attractor state where that becomes the default path. And I think that that's a little bit of a, another tragedy that we have to deal with is the sort of crisis of meaning that comes from living in a way that is disconnected from really striving to do something different and better and interesting and important. And I just, I really struggle with the idea that, you know, there, there are hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of people whose function every day is to somehow put food on the table or pay rent or whatever. And the mechanism and means of doing that is disconnected from anything that most of these people could call important yeah so much of human time and energy is wasted on just continuing the status quo and actually this ties in with um, something you said whilst you were talking about your vision uh, you just mentioned video game briefly and i wanted to actually push you on it so you were mentioning how you tend to avoid video games because you know that you could just get sucked in with them and you know maybe your personality is like that and so there's actually a question which i've been trying to think about a lot and I haven't got a good answer yet so maybe I'll just ask you and we can compare but for me there's like this toss-up right between good use of your own attention and sort of good use of your time in service of improving the lives of others right now I don't think that those are completely mutually exclusive I think you could get very involved and attentive to charity work but on some level uh, this might be informed by my sort of ideas about the general correctness of some of the main ideas of buddhism even if we discount their like very metaphysical beliefs but the idea is that at the end of the day things are mostly what you make of them that thoughts are insubstantial that it's possible to experience extreme contentment in any situation and all of that for me boils down to the correct uses of attention and so for me there's this trade-off or at least i feel it as, as if it is this trade-off between creating the kind of life where my attention subjectively feels like it's being used well versus, I think, a life which might have a little bit less of that subjective feeling of a good use of attention, but is probably more productive. And for me, it honestly feels like this question of asking, to what extent can we be selfish in the use of our attention? So I don't know if you want to react to that on, on any sort of gut level. Yeah, coming back to uses of one's attention... Yeah, there might be things that are, you know, a good, you know, in the in the utility calculation, good uses of one's attention in terms of one's own life, um, and then good uses of attention in terms of as a part of a something greater than one. So, like, as an example of what I think you're trying to convey, and then you can check me on if this is wrong. Let's say a good use of my attention would be to watch uh, the top hundred films of all time as ranked on online right so that would be that would be a good way to spend my time in terms of it's better than spending my time watching a hundred hundred random mostly mediocre or bad movies so it would be better to spend my time watching a good movie than a bad one however both of those are bad ways to spend my time from the perspective of me working on some kind of research right unless of course my research is 
for a film I'm going to direct, in which case watching the movies probably is a good way to spend my time. You know, like a Quentin Tarantino probably could be said to add net value to the world. And he spends like 95% of his waking life just watching films and TV shows, right? And, and then just combining all of that and synthesizing into new things, right? So, so it really depends on, on what sort of role you fulfill in, the, in that organism, right? And then there's also, there's good and better ways to, to spend those sort of attention points. And then there's, you know, in, in the more difficult sense, it's like, well, a good way to spend my attention would be, in, in my own life might be, you know, to, do, to spend my time studying the things that will allow me to, you know, earn the most income. Right, or give me the best chances of being successful under whatever measure that might be. But one might go into like quantitative finance and uh, spend a whole bunch of time researching novel ways of uh, predicting fluctuations in stock markets and be able to make billions and billions, which is very good to you if that's what you're trying to do. But that actually provides like no real direct value to society. And one could argue that trading on stocks does improve society as a whole in some way, but it's, it's more of a zero-sum game when you're talking about short-term speculation. You know, you're, you're, you're shorting things so everyone else is losing and you're winning. That sort of thing. Not a perfect analogy or an example, um, rather, but it's a reasonable way to think about it. Is you, could, you could do things that are very beneficial to yourself and spend your time on those things, but they may not be beneficial to the world as a whole. And so how do you find things that align what, what is a good way to spend your own time and attention with what is a good way to spend your time and attention in terms of how you fit into humanity as a whole and, and how you move humanity in a positive direction? So I think that's kind of the juxtaposition that you're looking into. And that ties very much into the sort of 80,000 hours from the effective altruism movement, which is there are certain things that the world needs that can also be very good for you as an individual. So I suppose we've, we've both you know, made our best attempts given the circumstances as, as we probably see it to align those things. And, and we have obviously different backgrounds, different skill sets, different cognitive and uh, physical resources at our disposal. And, and those change the calculus of what, you know, what's better to, to work on. But it is, a, it, is a, it is a difficult problem. How does the trade-off present itself to you and sort of what, what things in a specific or non-specific sense go into that calculation for you as where, the, uh, where sort of the bite point is between how much you should spend your attention to serve yourself versus... Uh, serving humanity because obviously if you never served yourself whatsoever that would be a dangerous thing as well right if you spend a hundred percent of your time working to you know solve the ai alignment problem you would die within a few days from sleep deprivation uh, right so that's obviously not very good to the overall outcome so i want to make sure that i convey this properly because otherwise i'm going to feel like i've not done a good job here but it's not so much I mean, there is always the trade-off between, you know, doing things for yourself, you know, taking an afternoon off to watch a movie or hang out with a friend versus, you know, your work, whatever that might be. And I know of people who are very extreme and say that if it's not your work, if, if you're not doing something all the time that advances your goals, you're wasting that time. I personally don't find that argument very compelling. But, but there's another sense in which I was asking the question, and I'm going to try and explain my intuitions behind it, and then actually be very interested to hear you react to that. So in some sense, right, if we take a very sort of Buddhist or um, even just pure mindfulness-based approach here, there's some extent to which I think you could say it is true that for a lot of the things which arise, and when I say arise, I mean things that you can be conscious of, we feel as if they are inherently good or bad, but at like a base level of reality, that distinction is, is not actually present, right? Now, this, first of all, starts to run aground with some of my other ethical intuitions, such as like human suffering is bad and should be minimized. But let's just create a little sub-universe here where we can talk about this without contravening that overarching idea and what i mean is that on a personal level i've sort of experienced and generally believe it to be true that almost anything that you can encounter as like a conscious being it is possible to experience it in a way in which you do not suffer now i realize that you know if someone is going to listen to this and then be like okay if that's true then stick some burning hot poker into your eye and see if you really don't believe in suffering and so I would completely acknowledge that on a practical level, I don't think that I have in any way enough skill in, uh, when I say skill, I just mean like true mindfulness to deal with that. 
But I mean, there are like very interesting stories of you know very advanced meditators who, for example, get they get their teeth extracted uh, without without anesthetic as a sort of test to see if like if really at a, a base level there was nothing intrinsically bad about pain, right? It was just a another arising sensation. And I mean, the extreme case of this, of course, would be the Buddhist monks that end up burning themselves, right, in protest. Yeah, the, the self-immolation is that really famous, iconic photo mm. with the monk in orange, engulfed in, in flame. But I actually mentioned it back and back on my photo, actually, if, if memory serves. But I think I may have seen a recolored, yeah, recolored version, yeah. So on some level, right, I, I kind of believe that to be true. And so I, I sometimes find myself, especially in situations where I'm maybe not enjoying myself, or, you know, I don't feel like it's the best use of my attention, as in I'm maybe somewhere I don't want to be or in a, a situation where I feel like, oh, I wish I could be doing something else. And then finding myself asking, well, is that true? I mean, you know, shouldn't I technically be able to find some sort of equanimity and even just intrinsic pleasure in being alive at all in this moment? And that kind of runs against my intuition of like, I shouldn't be wasting time. There are important problems that need, need solving. So I guess I've done a, a bit of a nebulous job of defining what I'm trying to talk about here. But it's generally that, right? It's this, it's this run-up between this intuition or this belief that things aren't intolerable and that you, if you use your attention truly in what I would call almost like the wisest way, it seems like almost nothing is in principle, something you wouldn't want to experience, versus this like other sensation of like, well, I really would like to be working hard on these things which I know are going to move the needle towards a narrow band of possibilities we want to hit for like the rest of society going into the, the future. I'm going to throw out a, like a concrete example or two and just tell me if I'm on the right track Go with for what it. you're saying here. Let's say you're, you're standing in a queue or a line somewhere waiting for something, buying groceries or waiting like at a bank or mm. something like that. Cool. The trade-off then inside of you is like, okay, cool, do I like pull out my phone and start like reading articles that I made a note to read for later that might help improve my understanding of a thing or whatever and spend my time in the queue doing that. But at the same time, it's like, oh, but look, I'm just bored because I'm in the queue and actually the boredom is not that bad and I could totally stand here in silence, you know, in the queue without needing to entertain myself and I could just survive that it's not actually so bad. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about or like you're being otherwise engaged and you would rather be reading and it's like well i could i could tolerate this but i could also do the reading that i think is more valuable yeah i, I think i think you've given a really nice example of, of a situation where this kind of question starts to crop up right because in some way giving into that that urge to read something it's very easy to justify it feels like you're getting smarter you're doing something but on the other hand i think there's a case to be made that it's a sort of a form of escapism uh, which might actually be justified right i, I think that as humans, we sometimes want to escape, in fact, often. But, you know, maybe it's causing us to be more distracted and, you know, you're missing out on just the pure experience of being bored in a queue. I, I think, you know, if any significant part of our listenership is not very familiar with mindfulness, that will sound like the most absurd statement. And I promise at some point we will explain this in more depth. Bring it back to the the ideas of, uh, of the stoicism that we explored right at the beginning. Stoicism, as far as I've had it expressed to me, seems to maintain that you should do everything you possibly can about the things you can do something about. And then notice the things that you can't do anything about and then just accept them. Because caring about the things you can't do anything about is just causing you unnecessary suffering. I mean, that's essentially what one of the, the core tenets yeah. boils down to. But the trouble being, in the modern world, you could almost always do something about a situation. There's, there's any number of things that could potentially help that you could do. So it seems like you have a virtually limitless store of options to explore before going, okay, well, there's nothing I can do and giving up. And then it comes back to this idea of you know, like what we think is possible and isn't possible, you know. Um, and constantly we're having our intuitions about that challenged. And I would, I would add as well, I mean, for both of us here, we'd have to acknowledge how our sort of general appreciation of stoicism does seem to butt heads a bit with the Elias Yadkowski dictum of shut up and do the impossible. 
Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of transhumanism is like, well, no, nothing should be impossible for us. As long as it's not prohibited by a law of the universe or physics. Yeah, exactly. Fundamentally, yeah. If, it, if you're not in violation of a law of the universe, you should be able to do it. And, and at some point, we can go start going, well, why can't we violate the laws of the universe? Which the last question explores, yeah, I mean, can we not violate entropy? Which is an interesting one. But that's, you know, much further down the cosmic line. For the more immediate sense, that leaves you in this difficult situation where you have to start making a snap judgment with minimal evidence about like what can you do, right? You know, so, so your your neighbors are having a loud party next door and it's keeping you awake at night. Well, is that something you can do something about? Is that something you can't do something about? You know, you could just be stoic about it and put up with it. But there's a lot of things you could potentially do about that. Almost an infinite number of things, <laughs> ranging from you know politely knocking on the door and asking them if they could keep it down to arson um <laughs> but but yeah i mean you could you could uh, drop a, a an incendiary grenade on them from from your drone <laughs> there's, there's all sorts of things you could do and most would uh, actually have to concede are a viable solution to that problem that has uh, more benefits than detriments potentially but 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 that said the thing you probably should do is just be like well they probably won't go for very much longer. And, you know, if I was making a whole bunch of noise, I wouldn't want people, you know, setting my house on fire. So I'll actually just put up with it. Um, and that, and that's mm. the point at which you have to, have to start. Um, an even nicer and more poignant example would be on death, right? The transhumanist idea that death is just a disease we suffer from and can ultimately cure is uh, a very powerful one and working towards that is a probably a very honorable and interesting and valuable goal but at the same time then you have the stoic idea of what just like you know accepting that someone has died mm. and so and, and what or, or, or that they will die or that you will die and you know memento mori is a very stoic thing to say you know remember you too will die and yet at the same time we're going well but maybe right like uh, unless we cure death first right and so it is a very interesting um, juxtaposition and it's actually something I've encountered a lot of uh, in my own life and never really framed it as this juxtaposition before so it's, it's really nice that you've brought that to my attention because now I, I see that, that trade off up front in the modern world there's a large degree to which you have to just set your slider of your personal preferences in such a way that you, you don't spin your wheels endlessly just trying to decide whether or not there's something you can do about a problem and suffer needlessly over that versus just uh, accepting it and moving on because for, for the majority of things in life that's what you should do you know if it's slightly too cold you know you could terraform the earth to raise the temperature slightly mm. but you should probably just deal with it and get back to <laughs> back to the open heart surgery that you're doing and so and so that's an extreme example which makes it very easy but as you narrow things in towards the, the central sort of gray area, it becomes difficult to determine which to go with. Yeah. Um, but now that I think I have that trade-off as a clear entity in my mind, it, it will probably allow me to notice quicker that it's that trade-off that I'm facing mm -hmm. and to hopefully make a decision faster, I would, I would imagine. All right. So Jean-Luc, I know that you have a dinner you want to get to, so I think we can start to bring things to a close here. But I think as we're winding down, I want to almost ask you if there's anything that you could just bring into existence right now. We've been talking about visions and obviously we know that a lot of these things are far away, but you get to snap your fingers once here. What piece of technology or something else do you bring? Okay, so the technology itself can't violate the, the laws, but uh, bringing it into existence, I can. Yes. So I can temporarily violate them. I have a one wish from a genie. But Basically. what I wish for has to adhere to the laws of physics. Man, this is giving me much uh, warm-up to this one. That's a tough one. Or even, you know, it can be either some instrumental thing mm. towards your vision of the long-term future, or even something that's useful now, right? I mean, you could just wish malaria away. Yeah, I've, I've, I've hinted at this in, in a previous episode, uh, but I, I'd say probably something along the lines of some fundamental piece of knowledge about computation that would allow us to uh, much more efficiently solve computational problems uh, or increase the efficiency of our algorithms. So for things like protein folding, which is an NP-hard problem, it's very hard to, uh, to simulate. And um, if we could do that, you know, even twice as well or 10 times as well, that would make 
huge impacts on uh, our ability to simulate potential new life-saving drugs or to simulate possible gene therapies that would help us make huge inroads into disease there alone. Then you look at like, um, it would help us to do optimization problems of all kinds better, which would make global trade and uh, transport more efficient, which would reduce CO2 emissions. So I, I think something along those lines would just pay back marginal returns that would compound and, and be very useful. If I could give it a little more thought, I might be able to come up with something a bit more specific that would uh, be much more likely to fit within the laws of physics. So yeah, it would probably be something along those lines because anything that is sort of conventionally what someone might wish for, you know, like curing cancer will seem woefully short-sighted if humanity does exist for millennia into the future. You know what I mean? It would, it would seem as trivial as a caveman wishing that they could uh, have a sharper piece of flint. So uh, I'd want something that would lead into compound growth and would be beneficial into the future. I'm going to throw that one back at you because I'm, I'm hoping that you have some really elegant answer to this question that you've posed for me. I don't have one off the top of my head. I think if I can just apparate something into into being probably, I think, a provably friendly control problem solved artificial general intelligence is probably the thing that we really, really need. It's the same idea as your submission there. It's the tool which solves all the other problems or potentially could. Yeah, so uh, yeah, my concern with that one is that that could conceivably violate the laws of the universe. As in, like, we don't know if coordinated, friendly AGI is actually possible yet. True. It, it may not be, right? Which is yeah, <laughs> a very big problem, but also a, a good uh, explanation of the Fermi paradox. For anyone who's not familiar, look it up. <laughs> but yes, I, I think you're, yeah, having, having friendly aligned AGI would certainly be that. Yeah, so something that is a tool to solving almost every other problem, yeah, and would lead into a feedback loop uh, that would uh, accelerate us into the future. All right. Awesome. Cool. We'll leave it there. It's been fun chatting. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Bit of a Tangent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter through the handle at podtangent. For more information about us, our backgrounds, and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. There, you can also find show notes, which have links to all of the great content discussed in the episode. And, as mentioned in the intro, we occasionally add bonus content related to this episode, or just mention favorite books, organizations, and other great stuff we happen across. If you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, or whatever app you use to get your podcasts. This lets iTunes know that we're actually worth listening to. Lastly, if you know someone who you suspect might enjoy the kinds of things that we talk about here, consider sharing an episode with them. It makes a huge difference to us. We both love having these discussions and relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. Your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.